Now, I don't think that that caricature of the Puritans is fair or accurate. And in fact, in many ways, I think the Puritans are responsible for restoring a theology about the joys of God's creation and the goodness of what he's given us in this world. Uh, but I simply share that quote because I think that really, friends, that's how this self-indulgent, hedonistic world often looks at Christians today. Many in our world think that Christians are, are the buttoned-up prudes that have the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be having a good time. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe in the midst of this self-indulgent society that, that gorges itself constantly on sinful pleasures, maybe we believers ought to be known by what we deny ourselves of. Maybe we ought to deprive ourselves of all earthly pleasures so that we are distinct in this world and reach the high plane of godliness that God intends us to reach. Maybe holiness is about what we give up. It almost sounds right, doesn't it? Almost. After all, Jesus did teach us that to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But friends, our passage today in 1 Timothy teaches us that there is a form of self-denial that is in fact damning. There's a form of pleasure rejection that could lead us so far away from Christ that we fall away altogether. It's the self-denial of rejecting what God created us to receive with a heart full of thanks to him. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Timothy. Friends, we have reached the, the, the halfway point, kind of turning the bend, heading for home now in this letter from Paul to Timothy. That page is page 992 of the Bible underneath your pews if you need it, or underneath your seats. That was a blast from the past. Underneath the seats. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take it home with you to make it your Bible. Friends, this morning, as I mentioned, we begin the last half of Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith, to strengthen Timothy for the hard work that Timothy had to go through to bring an ailing church, a spiritually sick church, back to health, the church at Ephesus in ancient Asia Minor. The reason that the church was so sick was the the toxic influence of false teachers who had risen from within the ranks of the church and were teaching a destructive doctrine. Chapter 1, verse 20, seems to indicate that Paul had already removed two of those false teachers. They're kind of the ringleaders of the bunch, Hymenaeus and Alexander. But clearly, the threat of false teaching remained, and so Paul left Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus and restore its theological integrity. Now, I hope after going through verses 14 to 16 of chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, you understand now why, why teaching sound doctrine is so vitally important to a local church. Paul wrote to Timothy that the local church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Friends, the church is God's vehicle, his chosen vehicle for showcasing and protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. A church that loses the gospel loses her identity and her mission and her purpose entirely. Well, having made that important point, now in chapter 4, Paul swings back to kind of his original motif in the letter, helping Timothy to address the false teachers. Only this time, he's going to get more specific about what they taught and how to counter it. Let's, let's read together this, this short text, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, here's the main idea of this text, which I pray will be the main idea of our, of our sermon this morning. 
If you try to please God by rejecting what he's created for you to enjoy, you put your soul in danger. If you try to please God, if you try to earn his favor by rejecting what he's, what he's created for you to enjoy with thanksgiving, well, you put your soul in danger. Two points this morning. Number one from verses one to three, the fatal religion of self-denial. The fatal religion of self-denial. And number two, kind of overlapping in verse three and going into verse five, the vital reality of God's goodness. The fatal religion of self-denial and the vital reality of God's goodness. Friends, I pray that today the Lord might remind us of the joy that he's prepared for us, not only in the life to come, but even the joys and his goodnesses that he's prepared for us in this life as we receive them with thanksgiving, the things that he's created for us. Let's look at this first point, the fatal religion of self-denial. Friends, this is one of those biblical texts where even as I wrote, I just sensed the need to kind of constantly be making careful, qualifying statements about what this text is saying and what it's not, what I'm going to say and what I'm not saying. And, and in talking about the dangerous religion of self-denial, I, I don't mean that Christians ought to be self-centered or self-indulgent. Clearly not. I mean, clearly Jesus taught us that, that true faith in him that those who have true faith and repentance will deny one's self-centered pursuits in order to follow him. Likewise, in the following verses in chapter 4 that we'll look at here in a couple weeks, Paul talks about the importance of training oneself for godliness. Clearly, training for godliness requires a discipline and a type of denial of self. But, but self-discipline for the purpose of godliness and equating godliness with self-denial are two entirely different things. Just prior to our text today, Paul wrote in verse 16 of chapter 3 that Jesus Christ is the true source of godliness. And then he, he wrote out that, that early Christian hymn that began at the incarnation and ended with Christ's ascension. It's what God has done through the person and work of Christ that, that provokes our true worship and humility in service. But instead, what was being taught by the false teachers within the church of Ephesus was that the essence of true godliness and the sum of true religion isn't knowing and worshiping Christ, but ridding yourself of earthly pleasures like sex and food. You see that clearly in verse 3. And what was being taught was that believers should be celibate. They shouldn't enjoy the pleasures of marriage, and they must live on a certain diet. They shouldn't enjoy the, the pleasures of certain types of foods. Now, at first glance, it kind of doesn't seem like that big of a deal, does it? Especially when you think of other heresies in church history. I mean, think about the attack on the, the deity of Christ in the, in the early 4th century when Arius rose from within the church at Alexandria, Egypt, and spread a heresy far and wide that Christ was a created being and therefore not co-equal with the Father. I mean, that was serious. Well, at first glance, this problem doesn't appear nearly as sinister as the, the self-justifying doctrine of the church at Rome that Martin Luther and the Reformers countered. Honestly, it just kind of sounds like overzealous Christians, doesn't it? And we've all encountered those, I think. We've run into these types of people. Is it really that big of a deal if professing believers buy into the teaching that to be super serious about their faith, they need to rid themselves of all earthly pleasure? Maybe the solution is just kind of chill out. Well, apparently it was very serious. In fact, you can feel Paul's urgency as he writes this. He starts off the conversation highlighting the fact that, that through this teaching of asceticism, once professing believers have fallen away from the faith. And he ends the conversation by showing that the religion of self-denial is really an attack on the goodness of God. And in between those bookends, he calls it the teaching of demons and says that those who teach it are insincere liars whose consciences are seared. So, yes, I would say that this is a pretty big deal. J.C. Ryle once wrote that there are really two ways to spoil the gospel. There are two ways to spoil 
The good news that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, lived and died and is raised again for the salvation of all who would turn by faith to him. The first way to spoil the gospel, Ryle wrote, is by substitution. Instead of trusting in Christ and his righteousness credited to you, you trust in something else for that righteousness. Substituted for Jesus are things like church attendance or the sacraments or good works or confession to a priest or whatever. Clearly, if you substitute anything for Christ, you've spoiled the gospel of grace. But then Ryle wrote that the second way to spoil the gospel is, is not merely by substitution, but by addition. By addition. And this way, friends, is far more insidious. It's not that just that you replace Jesus. You, you add to him, right? You trust in Christ, yeah, plus a little side hustle, right? And I suspect that this is how the heresy at Ephesus started. Church members followed the false teachers, began began to add prohibition to God's prohibitions to God's revealed word in an effort to please him. Rather than trusting in Christ alone, it became Christ and no marriage. It became Christ and no meat, or whatever the specifics were. It's not technically an overt legalism that tries to gain a right legal standing before God through human achievement, but rather it's, it's a close cousin of legalism and, a, and an asceticism, the religion of self-denial, right? Asceticism sees holiness and the sum of one's relationship with God only in terms of what you give up. But don't you see, friends, that when you add anything, including what you give up to the pure gospel, you lose that gospel altogether. If you add anything alongside the message of Christ crucified, it actually becomes a different message. So quickly, resting in Christ alone for his righteousness can become a gospel of resting in your own self-denial to prove your righteousness. And what happens, actually, is that the gospel of addition morphs into the gospel of substitution pretty quickly. Instead of a humble faith and reliance upon Christ, our hearts begin to boast and rely on our own sense of righteousness instead based on what we give up. That's why Paul frames the whole discussion in such urgent terms to Timothy. People will fall away from the faith entirely through this asceticism. It's, it's poisonous. It gets in the spiritual bloodstream and it's fatal. What starts out looking so holy and right is in the end deadly to their spiritual life. We're going to swing back to this topic in a moment, but first let's look at how Paul lays this out, okay? In verses 1 to 3, Paul essentially tells Timothy that in order for him to be a faithful minister of the gospel in this evil age, he needs to have his eyes wide open as to what's going on. Paul writes, Timothy, this is an age of apostasy. People will fall away. And how will they abandon Christ? Well, look at this, this sinister chain of apostasy that we see here as Paul lays it out. Link number one, some people will depart from the faith. Link number two, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and, and uh, the teaching of demons. And then link number three, connected to that through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, friends, apostasy is going to happen by the influence of Satan and the demonic realm disguising their hellish purposes through what looks like good, solid teaching. They're going to work through false teachers, liars, as Paul calls them. And what is this false doctrine that, in this case, will dupe professing Christians and lead them away from Christ? Well, again, it's this religion of self-denial, that in order to have a relationship with God, Christians must be celibate vegetarians or something like that. That's the flow of the passage. Paul wants Timothy to root out this pseudo-legalistic teaching for the sake of the flock. And in working against this asceticism, he's going to then curb the apostasy of some who might be tempted to fall away. Friends, this reality, this reality of once professing believers walking away from Christ is one of the most difficult things in pastoral ministry. It's heartbreaking when those whom you've invested in and shepherded in love walk away from faith in Jesus. And, and this is not just a, a, a sorrow for elders, is it? 
I mean, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've likely experienced this sorrow too. It's, it's commonness doesn't make it any less painful. But at least, Paul says, when this happens, we should not be surprised. Why ought we to expect this apostasy to happen in this age? Well, according to verse 1, God the Spirit expressly says it will happen in the later times. Which isn't referring to something down the road later, but it really is kind of Paul's eschatological shorthand for the time between Christ's ascension and the time between his ascension and his second coming. Okay, this age, the age that we're in right now as we await the return of the king. Well, when did the Spirit say this? Well, it's certainly possible that the Spirit spoke a prophetic word to Paul, given the fact that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. That, that is possible. Or it could be that Paul is simply attributing to the Spirit what has already been revealed by Jesus, who was, after all, indwelt and empowered fully by the Spirit. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that in this time before the end of the age, many will fall away and many false teachers will arise and lead many astray. And then he concludes, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. At the end of the day, what exactly Paul is referring to isn't as important as his main point. God, the Holy Spirit, wants local churches like that one in Ephesus and like ours here in Goodyear, to be aware that so long as the church exists in this age, people will be deceived, and they will walk away. Friends, what matters is not so much how you start, but how you finish. We sang earlier, when on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing his praise unending. Oh, I pray that would be true of all of us here sitting this, here this morning. Friends, we love to see the, the zeal of new believers, don't we, and young converts. It's refreshing and wonderful to participate in the baptisms that the Lord has been letting us experience here on a regular basis here at Redeeming Grace Church. God has given us the, the wonderful opportunity to see the new birth kind of happen and, and the, the emblem of that in, in the waters of baptism. But friends, ultimately, ultimately, we're realistic that the presence of true faith is not evidenced by an initial confession, but by a life of faithfulness. We're not after a uh, kind of a, a Fourth of July sparkler type of zeal. Passion that, that burns hot and bright for a short time, but then fades to black. No, we're after a faith that endures to the end. There's no question we'll struggle. We'll all have seasons in the Christian life where our affections for Christ wane. We may even go through serious doubts in the faith. But in the end, friends, true faith in Christ is faith that lasts. You might ask, well, John, is Paul saying that I can lose my salvation? No, God's word is clear. Those who are truly saved will persevere to the end. Once truly saved, always truly saved. John, though, in his gospel, uh, or in his, his epistle, helps us understand what's going on when someone walks away from the faith. John wrote, of those who went out from us because they were not of us. Ultimately, if once professing believers apostatize, it's because they show themselves to be what they always were. They didn't belong to Christ. So how will believers persevere to the end? How will we endure? Well, brothers and sisters, I think this text reveals at least one way. How will you make it to the end confessing Jesus with a life to back it up? Well, it will happen in large part because you devote yourself to the right type of teaching. You devote yourself to the right type of teaching. Paul says clearly that the reason some will fall away is that they devote themselves to just the opposite. They devote themselves to teaching that turns out to be fatal. They give their heart and mind to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. I don't think Paul is saying that the people who fall away are, are self-conscious that they're being swayed by the demonic realm, right? As if somehow they all turn into Satanists. That's not what's going on. He, after all, he calls them deceitful spirits for a reason. Satan is a master Deceiver. He, he masquerades, doesn't he, as, as an angel of light. He's, he's an expert in cloaking the sinister with the veneer of the holy. 
And it's clear here that one of the ways that he deceives is through quote-unquote Christian teachers who twist the truth. He leads people to hell, verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Friends, we just need to have our head on a swivel, don't we? We need to be aware that in this age, Satan will use charlatans who portray themselves as godly teachers, but in reality, they're full of hypocrisy. They knowingly and willingly pull the wool over people's eyes for their own selfish gain. They'll preach a passage like, or a message like abstain from marriage and certain foods while all the while selflessly pursuing their own lusts. Paul writes that these teachers were not well-intentioned. They're wicked. Their their consciences, their, their moral consciousness of what is right and what is wrong has been seared. Literally, the image, and if you're reading the NIV, you'll, you'll see it very clearly. The image is that their conscience has been seared and cauterized like with a hot iron. Maybe you've experienced a severe burn in your life in which your skin was was seared so bad that it, that it killed the skin tissue. Your nerve endings ceased to fire under, underneath the scarring from the burn. You have, you have a type of skin there in the place where you were burned, but it's, it's totally numb to touch because of the searing. Well, that, that's the image with the false teachers. By violating their, their sense of right and wrong again and again and again, these, these teachers are so defiled by sin that they don't even feel the evil of it anymore. Now, beloved, this ought to sober us. It ought to sober us because what this means is that satanic activity in this world doesn't merely happen in the obviously evil, but also in the apparently holy. Satan's work can manifest itself in pulpits of local churches and in things like books and YouTube channels and podcasts and Christian cable TV networks. In this age of mass content and multimedia, we Christians need to have our guard up and work hard to cultivate biblical discernment. Friends, just because someone has a massive following, just because he or she has sold millions of titles or has thousands of subscribers, doesn't mean that they're doing the Lord's work. In fact, they may be doing just the opposite. Paul here seems to call for a dual discernment, a discernment of the teacher's life and a discernment of his message. Not just that we measure what we see in the teacher's lives, although that's important, and I think that actually highlights the fact why Paul went over through those qualifications for elders, right? Make sure that they're godly men who teach you, but that not only we see their lives, we evaluate what we hear out of their mouths. Brothers and sisters, listen, every time you hear me preach, listen with a discerning ear. Even this morning, Listen with a discerning ear. I didn't say a critical ear, although if you want to give me critical feedback, go right ahead. But listen with a discerning ear. You ought to measure what I say by the biblical gospel. You ought to corporately, as a congregation, hold my teaching to the plumb line of our statement of faith, which we understand expresses biblical orthodoxy. Become a student of the word, friends, to the degree that you are able to do this well and knowledgeably. And guess what? I list out, we list out in our bulletin, in our weekly email announcement, the next several weeks of the preaching schedule, okay? Usually the next three or four weeks. You know why we do that? It's not just to prove that we're kind of halfway organized. (laughs) Highlight on the halfway, right? No, it's so that you can read ahead and dig into the word yourself and deepen your understanding of that text, and so kind of be part of the the congregational mechanism that God has given to ensure that I and others preach the word of God faithfully and accurately. Look at the text again. What is the teaching of demons that caused some to fall away from the true faith in Christ? Well, shockingly, friends, it wasn't a hedonistic message encouraging people to receive that which God had prohibited. Rather, it was a message prohibiting that which God had created to be received with thanksgiving. Repentance toward God and faith in the finished work of Christ was essentially replaced with, don't enjoy the pleasures of marriage and don't eat certain foods. That's how you can be holy. That's how you can have kind of the premier relationship with God. Now, we don't know exactly 
what this, this, the specifics or the origin of this, of this teaching was, but we might get an idea. So in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he writes in chapter 2, verse 17, that, that Hymenaeus and Philetus swerved from the truth by teaching that the future resurrection of the dead at the end of the age well, had already happened. So if that's the, her- the heresy that was kind of plaguing the church at the time of this first letter, well then perhaps the false teacher said something to the effect of, well, Jesus said that in the age to come there would be no marriage and therefore no sex. Well, the resurrection of the dead has already happened. And so therefore, the only way to honor God now is to be celibate in singleness. I mean, Paul in other places commended singleness, right, for the, for the sake of the gospel, but in no place does he say that sex is dirty or wrong inside the, the boundaries of marriage. In fact, he's making the case here that it is right and good. Perhaps they forbade the eating of certain foods like meat and some sort of weird return to the conditions at Eden since they were, they were teaching that the age to come had already fully arrived. Or, or maybe it was none of that. <laughs> what, what's key is, friends, that this demonic teaching wasn't, it was not a message of live however you want but rather a list of extra-biblical prohibitions that resulted in the faith of once uh, professing Christians being upended entirely. The substance of Christianity was, was twisted from whom you trust to what you abstain from. They migrated from faith in Christ and his finished work toward a, a reliance upon their ongoing work of self-denial. Paul speaks of this danger in his letter to the Colossian church. There he, said, he says this, if you've died with Christ and he set you free, well then why are you submitting to a list of regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? It's that same toxic religion of man-made self-denial. Paul writes in Colossians 2.23 These have indeed, these regulations, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Did you hear that? They are of no value in curbing our sinful appetites that arise from the human heart. Friends, the sad thing about this religion of self-made self-denial is is not only that it's wrong, it's useless. It doesn't work. Rigid asceticism cannot curb your sinful lusts. Only the Spirit of Christ transforming your life through the gospel of Christ can do that. Friends, we're going to look in a moment at more of the theological scaffolding that should guard us from this mindset. But at this point, let me just ask you, have you bought into this religion of self-denial? Is your concept of Christianity more of what you need to steer clear of than whom you must cling to? Is Jesus Christ the fountainhead of your godliness, or are you trying to manufacture it yourself? Oh, beloved, don't be duped by this false religion. It's a man-made religion. It's a faux religion masquerading as godliness, and it's demonic and it will draw you away from faith in Christ. Number two, not only do we see the fatal religion of self-denial, we see the vital reality of God's goodness. The vital reality of God's goodness. Paul writes in verse three that the demonic doctrine of the liars was to forbid marriage to require abstinence from foods that God created to be received by thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, this this sham of spirituality is really a a full frontal assault on the goodness of God. He created foods, right? And by implication, he created sex within the context of marriage and a host of other earthly joys to be received with thanksgiving by his people in ways that he's laid out in his word. In verse 4, Paul kind of drops the theological bomb that destroys the religion of self-denying asceticism. For, here's the undergirding, here's the reason we can say this. For, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. 
Friends, if these false teachers and, and their over-realized eschatology about the resurrection of the dead were, were calling for a return to Eden, well, then Paul's word here just annihilates their view, doesn't it? Because clearly he's calling the re recalling, excuse me, the refrain of Genesis 1. When each day after creation, God declares that what he created is intrinsically good. And after day six, what did God say? It's very good. It's very good. It is by its very nature morally excellent and objectively good because it, because it is the creation of a morally excellent and objectively good God. If everything was declared good at creation, then nothing God made is to be declared taboo. Even after the fall, friends, God re reiterated this truth as it relates to food, right? After the fall and after kind of the biggest kind of human judgment consequence of the fall in history, the flood, right? In Genesis 9-3, the Lord said to Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. Friends, you may be a vegetarian or a vegan for health reasons, but you ought not to be for spiritual reasons because God has declared both plants and animals good for food. There are no spiritual grounds to think of yourself more highly because you abstain from eating certain foods because God has sanctioned the entirety of the plant and animal life and his creation as good for the use for food. This goodness in creation is a direct reflection of his goodness as our creator. And of course, for, for much of salvation history, uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, were, were prohibited ceremonially uh, from eating certain, certain foods as a kind of a symbol of their relationship with God. But we know that now after the cross, as in the cross in Christ Jesus, he has broken down those walls of hostility and Christ Jesus fulfilled the law and he's united Jew and Gentile. There are no foods that ceremonially now defile a person. Jesus kind of laid out the foundation of this in his earthly ministry, didn't he? When he said that it's not what enters into a person's mouth that defiles a person. It's what arises out of his heart that defiles him. Remember Acts 10, when Peter saw the vision, right, of the sheet descending from heaven with all types of animals and reptiles and birds. I mean, think of that's a freaky dream, right? Representing animals that were both clean and unclean according to the law. The Lord invited Peter two or three different times to arise and kill and eat. And Peter resisted, citing the Mosaic law. Remember how the Lord responded? Peter, what God has made clean. Do not call common. Friends, the religion of self-denial does just that. It declares what God has declared clean to be common. It, it rejects what God has declared good and declares it evil. It forbids what God declares clean by declaring it unclean. It's a direct attack upon the goodness of God. Friends, this has been Satan's strategy actually from the very beginning. From the very beginning of time, it should not surprise us that this is called the teaching of demons because the prince of demons executed this strategy with our hum first human parents in the garden. His very first question to humanity was about food in order to question the goodness of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Friends, is that what God said? Of course not. No, God had given them to eat of every tree of the garden but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He prohibited one tree so as to preserve and protect their loyalty in response to his word. He wanted to ensure that Adam and Eve responded to him with a, with a true heart of love and worship. But he wanted them to enjoy the pleasures of the garden. Right? He gave them a world of pleasures. He gifted them a garden of his delights to experience and enjoy to the max. There were no doubt thousands of trees of every kind of fruit imaginable for them to have. And this was before the fall, so they must have just been spectacular in their nature, right? God said to them, it's yours. Delight in it. Receive it with thanksgiving, Adam and Eve. You're my children. I love you. Enjoy my goodness. 
Friends, Satan knew that if he could get Adam and Eve to question God's goodness, he'd have them. And so he portrayed God as stingy, as closed-handed, as restrictive, as not good. He essentially said, what type of God would deny you the pleasure and joy of this tree if he really cared about you? Are you really going to obey and worship this tight-fisted tyrant? Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson writes about this temptation of Satan. He said, now all Eve saw was a negative command. One small object near the eye can make all larger objects invisible. Now it was the sight of the forbidden tree blocking her vision of a garden abounding in trees. Now she could not see the forest for the tree. Friends, Satan's strategy from the beginning has been to to belittle God's generosity, to attack his goodness, and really that's still his strategy in in this religion of self-denial that we've been talking about this morning. He deceives people to think that that God is really pleased when they deprive themselves of things like sex and marriage and certain foods when he's given all of that as a display of his goodness to be received with thanksgiving. In the garden, friends, Satan pictured God as a depriver, as a withholder. And in 1 Timothy, the false teachers still portray him as a depriver. The difference is is that in the garden, in the garden, Satan wanted Eve to reject the depriver. But in the 1 Timothy type of religion of self-denial, Satan's strategy is for you and me to embrace the depriver. Satan doesn't care. So long as your view of, of God is skewed, so long as you don't understand him to be full of generosity and intrinsically good, he's fine. Whether you rebel against him or whether you're worshiping a false god, he doesn't care as long as you're bowing down to a false god. A god who withholds what is good, not gives it. Satan would have you believe the lie, beloved, that to glorify God is not to enjoy him forever but to forfeit all that joy in the name of holiness. That's why this ascetic religion of self-denial is so dangerous. It dismisses God's goodness at creation and therefore impugns his character. So if this religion of self-denial is so toxic, if it's so fatal, what's the antidote to that poison? Well, friends, it's to receive all that God has made with a heart of thanksgiving. It's to to turn, right, and experience God's creation as a worship event. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we can interact with with God's creation in ways that are clearly prohibited in his word, right? As long as we're thankful, we're good to go, right? Sleep around, cheat on your wife, thank you, Lord. No. 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 Right? Use illegal drugs. Be gluttonous. Thank you, Jesus. No. Clearly, that don't abuse the text, right? We need discernment to know what in our human experience is attributable to the creation of God's goodness and what to the fall. Rather, Paul here is simply freeing us, and, and God the Spirit is freeing us to enjoy what God has already sanctioned with a heart full of gratitude and love. I think this is what the author of Ecclesiastes was reflecting on in, in the passage that Beth read earlier. The preacher was calling us, wasn't he, to enjoy the goodness of God. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. He's already given it to you to enjoy. Let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Use lotion and moisturizer. Go for it. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. You know what that means. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Uh, Friends, I don't think that the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, enjoy the things of life as ends of themselves. No, he's saying rather enjoy them and receive them with the knowledge that they are good gifts from your good God. Do you see how freeing this is, friends? It actually turns the normal 
into something profoundly meaningful. It flips the ordinary, like eating a meal, into an opportunity for worship as we enjoy what God has given us for his glory and for our good. Friends, this is part of the distinct and deep joys of being a Christian. We get to experience the goodness of God in his creation. I can go to the same restaurant as as a non-believer, and he might enjoy the food to a certain level, but I can... I can eat a good steak that melts in my mouth and not only say, that is so good, I can say, praise the Lord. Thank you for your goodness, God. For your undeserved kindness to us. Paul gives an added piece of logic to his statement that God's good creation is being received with thanksgiving here in verse 5. He says in verse 5, 4, again, this kind of added logic, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Friends, when we honor God by receiving with thanksgiving what he has made, it's, it's like the, the food or the marital relationship or the, the experience in nature or whatever else. It's doubly consecrated, isn't it? It's doubly declared holy. It's first consecrated by the fact that God created it. He declared it good. He's verified it through his word revealed to us. And then second, it's consecrated again as we prayerfully and gratefully respond to him and honor him for his abundant goodness. I love that. Love it. I hope you're starting to see why those who embrace the religion of self-denial are in danger of abandoning the faith. You can't claim to know God as your redeemer while insulting him as your creator. Friends, if you're here and not a Christian, this is why I think it is so important. One of the reasons, obviously. It is so important that you come to God by faith in Christ. The only way that you can rightly honor God as your creator is if you come to him as your redeemer. Friends, our hearts are by nature idolatrous. We we think things like a good steak and sex and marriage and all other things that God has created, we think that those things are ends of themselves. We think that those are our highest good. And so we give them the worship and allegiance of our hearts. Or else we go the complete opposite way, and like the ascetics, we deny them and worship our own sense of righteousness. Oh, friends, God could not continue to be good if he swept that type of rebellion under the rug. His goodness that we've been talking about here, in, that was demonstrated at creation, his goodness demands a response for that type of idolatry and self-worship in our lives. The Bible defines our natural human condition as not only being sinful, but guilty before God. We deserve his eternal judgment for our sin. But praise God, it's in Christ the Son, through his work on the cross, that the goodness of God is most fully displayed. The goodness of God is not most fully displayed through a good stake. The goodness of God is most fully displayed in his Son. His Son, who gave his life, When he gave his life on the cross, friends, it was like God was demonstrating his goodness in two ways simultaneously. The goodness of his justice and the goodness of his mercy. His justice in judging our sin on the Lord Jesus. He judged Christ for our idolatry and the goodness of his mercy in forgiving that same idolatry for Christ's sake because he died for us. Friends, in love, Jesus died to forgive us and to reconcile us to God, and he rose again so that all who turn to him from their sin by faith in Christ might live forever in a world of eternal joy and goodness. Our friends, don't delay. And don't waste your time any longer worshiping your man-made gods. Turn to the true and living God by faith in Christ. If you have any questions about this gospel, I would love to talk to you after the service. Find one of our members, find an elder. We would love to share more of this gospel with you today. Friends, before we close this morning, let me give you, or before we take the Lord's Supper together, but, uh, let me just give you a few practical applications from this passage, okay? Number one, number one, cultivate in your life a pattern of thankfulness to God for all his good gifts. Cultivate in your life a pattern of thankfulness to God for all his good gifts. Friends, I think this this assumes that you first stop and that you recognize the many and manifold gifts that God has given you. It means that you see the gifts as an avenue to worship the giver. So, for instance, real practical, we're about ready to 
to come to the summer months in Phoenix, right? Instead of grumbling about the heat in June through September, and this is me included, maybe we ought to stop and thank God that almost every day we wake up here in the valley, the sky is blue, and the sun is shining. What a unique gift of his creation and providence in this part of the world. What about in your work and in your hobbies and in your family? Do you see God's goodness shining out in the ordinary? One author said it this way. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. In other words, armed with a doctrine of God's goodness, friends, the mundane becomes worship. The so-called secular becomes sacred. When we don't enjoy God's gifts as ends of themselves, that's to turn his gifts into false gods. Rather, we enjoy them as a means to the end of enjoying the God who gave them to us in the first place. Number two, leave to the realm of conscience what the Bible does. Leave to the realm of conscience what the Bible does. I mentioned earlier that legalism and asceticism or this religion of self-denial, they're, they're close cousins. Both naturally flow out of human pride. Both emphasize human effort rather than God's grace. But there's another common thread that binds legalism and asceticism together, right? Both attempt to bind people's consciences where the Bible does not. Legalism says, do this and God will justify you. Well, that clearly binds a, a person's conscience toward the thing that they must do in order for God to love them. Well, the religion of self-denial binds people's consciences the other way. It says, don't do this in order to be holy. It creates extra biblical categories that all people must adhere to in order for their conscience to be clear, right? Friends, it's one thing to say, I'm not gonna eat red meat in order to lower my cholesterol. It's another thing entirely to arrogate spiritual value to such a stance and say, well, nobody who's spiritual will eat such red meat, right? That's what's truly the most healthy. You must do it in the way that I do it. Well, the same goes for a million different issues, from alcohol to organic produce to fair trade coffee to listening to music by a certain Christian publisher. It's one thing to say, I don't know if I can do this by faith, so I'm going to abstain. It's another thing to say, I can't see how my brothers and sisters can do in faith what I cannot. Brothers and sisters, if the Bible leaves room for freedom of conscience, so must we. Here's the counterintuitive reality. When we raise fences where the Bible does not, we in effect lower the fences that the Bible puts up. When we lower the fences, though, on, on debatable matters and we refuse to bind people's consciences where the, God's word doesn't, we will in effect raise the fences on non-debatable issues, right? The issues where the Bible does bind people's consciences to do what God's word says. And why does this matter? It not only contributes, friends, to the unity of the body around the gospel, it helps protect our holiness and our worship together. It actually, by lowering the fences on debatable matters of conscience, it promotes our thankfulness to God for his generosity and kindness while protecting our hearts from a distorted view of him. Number three, number three, let the goodness of God's creation point your heart forward in hope to the new creation. Let the goodness of God's creation point your heart forward in hope to the new creation. Beloved, these joys that we receive with thanksgiving now, they're just a foretaste, aren't they, of the unhindered, unspeakable joys that we will receive from our God for all eternity. Not, not only will his creation, this, this creation that now groans under the curse, be set free from its bondage to decay, but we who have so long wrestled with idolatry of God's gifts and the false religion of self-denial, we will be set free to never do that again. 
Friends, when God makes all things new, when he destroys sin and death forever, everything in the coming world will inherently, naturally be for us a catalyst for our full joy in God. Everything that we see in the world to come will sparkle with the Creator's grandeur to us. Everything that we smell will have our Lord's sweetness. Everything that we taste will turn our tongues to worship. Everything that we hear will play the Creator's song. Everything we touch will cause us not to grasp after more gifts, but cause us to embrace our King, our Giver. So let, friends, God's goodness received in part now point you in hope to his goodness that will be received and worshiped fully then. Oh, friends, remember this main idea. If you try to please God by rejecting what he's created for you to to enjoy, you put your soul in danger. But I think I could have added another part to my main idea. If, on the other hand, friend, you receive with thanksgiving, God's good gifts through Christ, his son. Our God will give you full joy and rest and life. Let's pray. Father, we just collectively bow our hearts together even now as we pray and we just thank you for being such a kind and good God to us. My Father, you have not only withheld what we do deserve, your great wrath and judgment for our sin, you've given us so many blessings of your goodness that we don't deserve. Kindness after kindness flow to us from your good hand. Oh, Father, help us not to reject what you have, been, what you have created to be received with thanksgiving. Father, rather, let us receive these things with hearts full of praise. Help us to turn and see the mundane as an opportunity to worship you and to thank you for your creativity and your kindness and your generosity to us. Even now as we turn to the Lord's table and we receive food, the food that represents your broken body and your shed blood for us, help us to see another showcase of of your great goodness to us, the goodness of forgiveness from sin, and the promise of the life of the world to come. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.